Hi everyone, and a very warm welcome to this episode of the Learning Journeys podcast from Lacuna Learning. Thank you so much everyone for listening and subscribing. Always delighted to see how many people tune in and and listen to what we've produced, so just thank you very much for doing that. We hope you're all keeping really, really well just now. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by double Paralympic medalist and Paralympic champion sailor, Helena Lucas, MBE. Often I know the guests really, really well. I don't know Helena particularly well. We were introduced through our mutual friend and colleague, Laurie McDonald, who's a um, Scottish coach developer. She's done some great work. She's from sailing, works with a number of different sports. And she was chatting to Helena one day and said, Doug, I've got a brilliant guest for you. So I'm really, really excited um, to... To learn a bit more about our journey, I do a bit of work as a coach developer in sailing. I'm not from that sport, so I'm pretty excited to learn a bit more about sailing as well, but really just to get into this this journey and um, see where it leads us. So thank you so much for your time, Helena. My pleasure, Doug. Okay, so by way of warming us up today, the regular feature on the podcast, if you could go on an adventure anywhere in the world, where would you go? Who would you go with? And what would you do? I'm very intrigued to see where professional sailor wants to go on their adventure well right now i think auckland new zealand is on my bucket list i've always i've always wanted to go to new zealand never have been to australia quite a few times obviously kind of with the the sydney olympics um in 2000 so before that went out quite often training i've had world championships out in australia and never ever ever been to new zealand and i think obviously we had the america's cup um only sort of a, a few weeks ago and and that certainly whetted my appetite but a friend of mine from uni um actually came from auckland so it's bonkers i never got around to actually going and visiting him but that is definitely right here right now that is where i'd want to go I'd probably have to take my husband, otherwise he'd be a little bit upset. So yeah, I'd go with my husband and the, this sounds so sad, doesn't it? The activity we'd end up doing is sailing. Because <laughs> believe it or not, we, yeah, we're, I think that's the beauty about our sport is there's so many different aspects to it. It's not, you know, yes, you can go racing, you know, you go to the Olympics, you could do the America's Cup, but also the cruising side of it is just absolutely brilliant. And you discover places that are, you know, you just wouldn't get to by land, the beautiful little bays and coves and stuff like that. So yeah, it would have to be the activity would be have to be sailing. I would also like to go skiing though, because my friend um, Mike used to tell me that you know skiing used to be pretty cool. And you could go literally in, in the winter, you could be up the mountain skiing and then down at the coast sailing. Um, you know, morning skiing, afternoon sailing. So um, I couldn't think of anything better. Oh, it's great! I was hoping for something as good as that, and uh, I predicted sailing would feature, but I didn't presume how would you get there would you sail to new zealand to get there not not right now not with covid i mean interestingly enough one of the things again on our bucket list my um my my husband steve and, and me is we would at some point like to yeah sail around the world that is definitely on our bucket list so absolutely at some point it would be really really cool to sail to new zealand that would be and obviously doing many 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 stops along the way but yeah that would be that's certainly another thing that's on our bucket list but i'd be quite keen to just jump on a an airplane right now and just fly out there just to get there and have you know have that first experience and then um yeah it'd be amazing to actually sell sell our boat there would be yeah 
pretty cool. That would be a really good um, achievement and definitely something that we're, we're, we're dreaming about and aspiring to. Yeah, well, obviously, for the purposes of the podcast, there are no COVID restrictions in place, so you you can you can sail as much as you want and go wherever you want. But <laughs> around the world trip, I just had a feeling you might say that um, that you just this, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't have a huge background sailing, but I did do one very long trip down the Red Sea. So there is a great joy to those long expeditions and stuff, um, and the various places that you end up along the way. So New Zealand's Auckland, there you go. You heard it here first, everyone. That's where she would go. Okay. I'm getting the sense of a lifetime on the water, a lifetime in sailing. Could we maybe go back to the beginning? Where did sailing begin for you? Gosh, I mean, I guess, well, my parents got me into sailing. Um, so I think my dad got into it first. And again, we, we I grew up in Surrey um, in a little village called South Nutfield. Um, so nowhere near the sea. And uh, I think my dad got into it with a friend, a tiny little lake called Hedgecourt near Gatwick Airport. And then my mum got into it. And then obviously as a kid, she got dragged along. Um, and I think I was probably only about eight at the time. And believe it or not, I absolutely hated it. My, my sister was a couple of years older than me. She she quite liked it. She, she, she was, yeah, went, went with the flow. But I was the kid in the front of the boat crying her eyes out, absolutely petrified. And it wasn't... I guess it wasn't it's probably until I was about 10 and um, we went on holiday, we went on a sun sail holiday actually um, to Greece. So obviously a little bit warmer, uh, a little bit sunnier and I think there was a whole variety. We did one week dinghy sailing and then one week on a yacht and there was a whole variety of boats to mess around with, obviously loads of kids and stuff and that was kind of the turning point for me. I think up until then I had, um, I think I had a fear of capsizing where the boat tips over. And we just spent we just spent the whole time, to be honest, capsizing boats, swimming, and all that side of things, and and that got me over my fear. And then I remember sort of coming back and doing junior helm week at the club, absolutely loving it. Um, commandeering our family topper that became mine, and yeah, I just got into racing. I remember doing my first. I remember mum and dad saying to me, "Why don't you have a go at the club race?" Did my did my first club race and just did really well apparently I'd beaten quite a few of the top members in the club obviously beat my parents so that was a big tick in the box and yeah and it kind of just grew from there really and we were really lucky that the Commodore at the time at a sailing club was very proactive and there was a couple of us that were you know doing well at sailing and he was really good at kind of making sure we got opportunities and pushing us forward and you know gosh in those days it was called centre of excellence which was now the RA zone squads and he made sure you know we we got onto those and then it progressed and we we ended up you know on the RA program and and the youth squad and stuff and and interestingly enough you know I I grew up with Simon Hiscox who is a a silver and bronze medalist in a 49er class so yeah silver in Sydney uh, bronze in in Athens and the two of us grew up sailing together on little hedge court with Crawley Mariners um, near Gatwick Airport so um, yeah it's amazing kind of how things turn around and I think we were really lucky with yeah the the Commodore of the club at the time just I think see, seeing our potential and, and making sure it wasn't wasted and, and that we had opportunities to progress. I was laughing as you were talking there, not at you, with you very much. My last guest that I recorded with, it's now, it's now out, Robbie Phillips, pro climber. Um, people assume that you always loved the sport that you did. Uh, and Robbie likes to tell them how, first of all, he went rock climbing. He actually hated it. 
thought it was really boring, just wanted to go inside and mess around and doesn't like camping, didn't finish Duke of Edinburgh's award because he did, got cold and wet and his expedition didn't enjoy it. So people assume that like these journeys are all amazing. Michael Phelps didn't like putting his face in the water when he first started, started swimming. And so we have Helena sitting in the front of the boat crying because it was it cold and wet? Yeah. Was it miserable? Was that what it was you didn't like? God, this sounds awful. And hopefully my mum and dad won't hear this podcast. But I think it was like, I just, I don't think I really trusted them. I mean, the, the boat that we had wasn't really, not, it wasn't kind of the most perfect family boat. It was quite unstable. It was an enterprise. And they, they have a habit of doing what we call the death roll downwind. So I think that sums it up in one word, doesn't it? The death roll. And I don't know, I, I just remember just feeling quite, you know, as soon as the wind got up, I remember just feeling really quite scared and little white knuckles hanging on for grim death in the in the front of uh, this enterprise. And I think, you know, it was that kind of, I think it was that fear of capsizing. I just, for some reason, thought something bad was going to happen. And actually, all, all that happened is you get a bit wet. And obviously, in this country, a bit cold, maybe, um, which is where I think Greece and the warm water, you know, ease, easing it in, you know, that made the big difference i think i was laughing again uh you've reminded me of a story many years ago the first day i ever went sailing many many years ago i would have been under probably five at oldest in thailand on a, on a hobby cat and um my dad had told me whatever you do don't let go of, of the grab handles on on the, on the catamaran I was like, okay fine and my brother capsized the boat with both of us with all three of us on it and my dad was looking up and seeing me hanging from this handle way above the water, <laughs> nowhere near it, hanging on for grim death. Because <laughs> I had been told not to let go. And he likes to tell us, well, you did listen to the instruction. Eventually I decided to let go because I needed to like help them get the boat around and stuff. But yeah, <laughs> the image is oh, same image. <laughs> okay, right. Oh, I love it. The other parallel with Robbie Phillips was that he also had a life-changing trip to Greece, where he went to Greece and suddenly ah. it was much warmer and more enjoyable and so on. So I find that, that a fascinating parallel. What was it about sailing, I guess, on that trip that came together for you? What was it about sailing that you loved? I think, you know, I, I think I realised actually it was a lot of fun. And... I mean, the the weird thing about the whole capsizing, you know, I was a good swimmer. So it wasn't like I couldn't swim or anything, you know, um, and I loved swimming. And I think, yeah, I think it was just realising the fun aspect to it and how much fun it can be. And and also, I think it's that freedom, isn't it? That, you know, you can go out in an oppie, you can go out in a toppie, you can go out in your own boat without your mum and dad. It's a bit like, I, th- I suppose it's a bit like riding your bike for the first time without mum and dad there or holding on to you. Or, or It's that freedom. And you're, be, you're, you're, you're in charge of your own boat your own vehicle in a way and I think that was really appealing as well it was you know it was that independence and that freedom of being able to just go off with some other kids in our own boats you know mum and dad are doing their own thing they might be out sailing or they're on the beach or in the bowl or something like that you know and it's like you just got that freedom to just go off and explore for the benefit of the listeners who are watching you right now the joy in Helen's face is amazing. Just the passion for that, that real sense of independence. And you're dead right. Cyclists always say the same thing, that first bike, that freedom to go off and do things and yeah, to do it for yourself maybe. Okay. So you obviously loved it so much that you wanted to keep doing it. And you then decided you were going to try and qualify for the Olympic Games. What was the journey from messing about in Greece to trying to qualify for the Olympic Games? 
Well, interesting enough, it, I guess the journey actually started before then because I remember watching my first Olympic Games on TV. It might have been LA Games, I can't remember now. But I, I remember it was only probably about, about six, maybe, and just being so inspired. Um, and, it, you know, it was the likes of um, Steve Cram, oh, God, uh, Steve Ovette, and and I, and I, I think... I just I'm, I just remember kind of thinking I really want to do that, and and obviously at that point I I didn't sail, so I'm not sure what I'm not sure what sport I thought I was going to go to the Olympics in, but there was definitely that drive from a really young age and that aspiration um, around the Olympics. So then when I started sailing and kind of realised actually. I might have, you know, a bit of talent at this. This could be the sport. Um, that that was kind of the driver, really. And you know, I guess small steps. The RA have an amazing youth program, so it was a case. Right, I want to get into youth squad first, and and then kind of progress from there, and then ultimately have a go. Uh, you know, trying to get into the Olympic, um, into the Olympic team and go to Olympic games. So, yeah, from a really young age, even before I started sailing, there was definitely that that drive and desire to um to try and compete in olympic games yeah it's really interesting that it started so early and it's fascinating the more conversations i have like this how often it was an early experience of watching games that kind of um led people to to want to go to one um even if you didn't yet know which sport it was going to be and it's like eddie the eagle isn't it he was trying to find a sport he might be able to go to the olympics in. yeah i think i was a bit similar in a way <laughs> And I think, you know, I mean, looking, I mean, I know we'll chat about London, you know, a bit later on, but I think what what I loved about obviously having a home games was, and so, you know, the British public, so getting behind it was, I think it just, um, it just showed how many different sports there are out there, especially, you know, especially to, you know, the kids and stuff, you know, you don't, you know, it's not just about netball, football, hockey, the, 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 to, traditional sports that are played at school there's gymnastics there's fencing there's some really interesting really taekwondo really different sailing different sports out there that you might you know as a kid at school you might think i'm rubbish at sport you're not there's definitely there's going to be a sport out there that's gonna you're gonna love and i'm sure you're going to be good at that you know and i think that that is the beauty of of kind of the olympics but I think, you know, having a home games, you know, that really kind of got everyone fired up. I think more people probably watch them than normally would. And yeah, just brilliant showcasing all the different sports that are out there that you can do. Oh, yeah, no, t- <clears throat> totally. I just, um, for me, I always get excited when I think about Olympic sport. Um, it's different if you've been to one, but I, I think um, just, yeah, an, an amazing spectacle for the world, I think. So you had a couple of attempts to qualify for the Olympic Games. Can you tell us a bit about those attempts? Yeah, so um, so I went through the youth program. Uh, so I moved into the board twenty class, and then when I got too old for that, so kind of turned eighteen, I delayed actually moving into the four seventy, which was the Olympic class, just because I wanted to go to uni, and I felt if I if I made the switch too soon, I was going to do a half-hearted attempt at getting my degree and also doing the Olympic campaign, um, because at that moment in time lottery funding didn't exist so it was very much in sailing it was incredibly hard to get sponsorships so it was about having a good job 
normally within the industry, because then you might have a sympathetic boss that would let you off um, to have the time to go to the regattas and stuff. So I was kind of very conscious of, right, I need to make sure, get good degrees so I can get a decent job so I can actually fund and pay for my, you know, my campaign. And so basically graduated, jumped into the 470, and I was just, my timing was impeccable. I was just so lucky. Literally, lottery funding started up then. Um, and I was lucky enough um, at the Europeans to qualify for the funding. And yeah, and it just kind of took off from there. And, and for us as a sport, the lottery funding was massive because it meant that we couldn't, we could finally be full time athletes, which we hadn't been able to do before. You know, we had to have a nine to five job to pay for your campaign, which meant you just weren't getting the time on the water. And you just could see the results from from Atlanta to Sydney, just the difference, you know, the number of medals that we won in sailing. We went from one of the, I think, the least performing sports to the top performing sport with cycling and rowing. Again, two sports that massively benefited from the lottery funding. So, but yeah, Doug, as you said, I never quite managed to get there. And um, sailing is quite a tricky one where uh, any one team per class can act per country can qualify for the game. So let's take uh respect about the 470, which is what I was saying at the time. I think there were there were six 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 teams competing for that one spot. So you you, you enter into into a trials process, which is brutal because you've you've spent three years working together as a squad to then you enter into trials and suddenly <laughs> your, your teammate is now your, your worst enemy because the, they could be the ones that stop you going to the games. Um, yeah, so we entered into the trial process. Unfortunately, I was second in the trials both times, which, um, yeah, there's being second quite hard um, and obviously didn't, didn't actually get to uh, compete at the Olympic Games, which was, which was a shame, but hey-ho. I'm really interested. Obviously, really, as you say, really difficult that you train with people for three years and then suddenly right at the end, you're like, yeah, we're, we're here to beat each other. Uh, how, how do you kind of make sense of that? You know, so because you obviously know that's going to be the case at the outset. How do you kind of create relationships, I suppose, where you're working together? Because you need to work together in sailing, right? You need more than one person on the water to make it realistic for racing and practice and so on. But then balancing that with the fact that, yeah, but I'm also trying to beat you. How, where, where do you, how do you reconcile that, I guess? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is really hard, to be honest. And I think the really important thing with making the squads work, obviously, in those kind of the first three years, is everybody needs to bring something to the table. So everybody needs to share. And difficulties happen when you feel there's maybe a particular team that's taking and not giving. Um, so, that you know, it has to be, you, you really do have to build up that trust and that sharing um, environment. And to kind of, and I think it's about that self-belief and backing yourself of, okay, look, if we all go into the trials with the equal amount of knowledge, you know, and just try and make it an even playing field, playing field. And then that last, you know, that kind of six months when the trial is going on, you know, okay, that's when we all just push in our own direction and, and, you know, try and come up with our own little gem that that could make the difference but definitely i mean in the all i think you know again the ra do a really good job of encouraging squads and and making you realize as a sailor look you know at the at the end of the day god this is probably going to sound awful i think with 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 the olympics and paralympics it is about winning medals 
and it's God, it's not necessarily about oh, take, you know, take it. Oh, I've been to the Olympic Games or Paralympic Games. It is really about winning medals, and it you know, and UK sport are very much into that, and the RYA are. And I think you know they can't. They do drum it into you that if you're if you're going to be good if you want to be good enough to win a medal, you've got to work together and you've got to work work together as a squad. If you go off on your own, you know the chances of you winning a medal are going to be pretty slim. And actually, if you do go off on your own, the chances are the squad are going to overtake you anyway because they're working together and they're they're sharing. You've got you know six teams sharing their knowledge and pulling together and testing different things. You know six. Well, if it's a double-handed, 12, 12 heads, you know, are going to be better than two. Um, and they, you know, and I think they do a good job of just, you know, making you buy into it, really, and realising how powerful a squad, you know, a British squad can be. And and I think that's why we have such an amazing, you know, we do have an amazing sailing team. The British sailing team is best team in the world. And, you know, and I think it is because because of that, because we do all work together. Um, and and again, we do, we very much do like the Olympic and Paralympic. We're not segregated. We are one big team, so that makes a huge difference. I'm interested the joy with which you talked about your early experiences of sailing, and the passion that you kind of got for that, and then the contrast of that with I mean, there's no denying it. The Olympics and Paralympics are about winning medals, right? And they're a great spectacle of people watching at home, but they are, you know, from an athlete point of view, you're, you know, you're not there as a tourist, you're there to pick up medals, right? How much of that early joy was still there in those attempts at qualification? I mean, I think it's got to be, you know, if you're not enjoying what, what you're doing, then you probably ought to stop. You know, it, Doug, you're absolutely right. It is, you know, the, the Olympic and Paralympic environment can be really stressful at times. You know, you have you have to get the results to stay on funding. There's always somebody nipping at your heels to get you, the, your spot on the squad. So you have to constantly be, you know, on your game. You've got to get the results. You, if you if you stop getting the results, you know, you're going to get dropped off funding and then it's pretty, pretty difficult to get back on it. And so there is that pressure. And I think it is, it is about obviously learning, learning the skills to, to deal with the pressure. So the, the mindset is very, very important so that you can deal with the pressure and almost, you know, just put it to one side. But I think you've got to have that enjoyment. If you're not enjoying your sport, you're not going to perform. And I know the best races I've ever had are the races where I've got out, I've just enjoyed it, I've been happy, and the results just come. And probably the worst races I've had are, are when you know I'm going out and I'm dreading it, and I can, I'm feeling the pressure. I don't want to go, and and funnily enough, they end up being the races that, <laughs> that don't pan out too well. So, you know, I think you've got to have, even though the pressure's there, you know, the enjoyment for the sport always has to be the underlying factor. Oh, thank you. I was just interested in like there's one stop when you get to a certain level, but actually in your case, it sounds like none of that was always always kind of there. So I should be really clear on the podcast at this point. You are a legitimate world level competitor competing in Olympic class boats, right? You then went on to compete at the Paralympics. How did that transition switch come to be? How did it come to be that you were offered that opportunity? 
So as I said earlier, so I, I campaigned the 470, which is the Olympic class for the 2000 uh, Sydney Games, second in the trials and missed out going. So then did a, a second campaign for Athens, second in the trials, always didn't get to go. And it was it was after, it was literally after they'd selected the team for Athens. My crew at the time, Jenny Healy, she was a physiotherapist. So well, she'd, she'd put work on hold to go full time. So she's like, right, look, I'm going to go back now and go back to my job and do physio again. And I can't remember just sort of standing again, God, what, what, on earth, what am I going to do now? Because the, the trouble is, this, I'm small, quite small. So I was very limited. So it wasn't the, the ideal thing would have been possibly for me to just try a different class, single handed class. Um, but I'm just, I was too small to sell laser radial, just not heavy enough, too small. So it was always going to be a 470 helm and nothing, <laughs> nothing else. And I think there, there was part of me that was kind of like, I don't know if I can do another four years in the boat. I, I was, to be honest, I was feeling a little bit stale. And it was literally at that moment where I was pondering what on earth to do when it was, actually the ROA approached me and said, would you consider switching into the 2.4 meter, which is a Paralympic class? And to be really honest, Doug, I had very little knowledge of the Paralympics. I hadn't really heard of them, didn't really have much awareness. And for me, it was, a, it, you know, it was quite a tricky decision because obviously, as I said to you, my aspirations always been the Olympics. And I remember like talking to Jen, my crew, um, and she's just like, just go for it. And, and my family, you know, my mum and dad and, and my husband, Steve, were just like, well, you've got nothing to lose. You, you know, why don't you try it? If you don't like it, then, you know, just come back and rethink and maybe go back into the 470. But, you know, maybe give it a go. And I think the other thing that was quite strange for me was, you know, I, I guess I, I've grown up not really thinking of myself as being disabled because... There's nothing that I can't do apart from give you the thumbs up. Apart from that, there's not really anything I I can't do. So I don't. I've never considered myself as being disabled, and I and I'd always grown up sailing kind of able bodied baits, toppers, four twenties, four seventies. So it, again, it was that weird moment of like, um, it sounds strange, but almost admitting that okay, I am. I guess I am disabled. I have got a disability. And and again, it's to be honest. Initially, I thought, well, I don't, I don't think I'm actually going to qualify for the the Paralympics. I don't think, I'm, I don't think I'm disabled enough because I was thinking I've been sailing able body baits, you know, been doing an Olympic campaign. They're not going to let me in, and you have to go through a classification process. And it's normally to so the classifiers are normally physios that have been trained up in doing the classification so you basically go through a process to decide yeah whether you are disabled or not enough to um be eligible for the paralympics so i went through the process and yeah and god i mean it's crazy i was more than i i thought so the point system there's a point system in sailing there is and and i think in the other sports i mean i think you'll be aware like you know the 100 meters is about five different races within <laughs> within the, the 100 meters isn't there or, or to do with the different disabilities and in sailing what what happens is there's a there's a point system so the most disabled you are you're one, a one pointer and the least disabled you are you're a seven pointer I, I assumed i would have to you know definitely be seven pointer and i actually came out as a six pointer so um yeah so kind of more than more than kind of qualified for it 
And I remember doing my first event in Miami. So, but I was very, I was very familiar with Miami because obviously I've been there in the 470 a lot and it was part of the World Cup series. And not not really not really helped by the OAA that kept telling me I was going to go there and smash it, but I did I did turn up and I did turn up with a certain amount of arrogance I think of like yeah you know I am going to smash this, and I didn't I didn't at all I think I finished fifth and it was a real eye opener for me because it was well either I'm obviously not that good or actually these guys are very good and you start finding out a bit more and, and you know realize you know a lot of my competitors have been really good laser sailors and you know like me campaign themselves at olympic level and either then had an accident or you know Heiko, he he's missing his his lower arm but he'd always like me he'd always just grown up sailing lasers and campaign lasers and stuff so you know suddenly realized actually i was sailing against some really good sailors damien seguin from france he he's just done the vendee globe he's just competed in the vendee globe um and just finished seventh which is pretty amazing. So I think it just sort of puts out there the level of quality that these guys, you know, had. And, you know, it it was the best decision I ever made, you know, looking back, absolutely the best decision I've ever made. And, you know, and it came just at the right time, really. Yeah, it's probably worth us uh, just putting a pin in something for the listeners. You may have noticed that Helen was talking there about um, a series of male competitors. I'm right in saying that in Paralympic sailing, there are no male and female categories. There's just Paralympic sailing. Is that right? Yeah, apart f- yes, um, certainly in the two point four meter class that I competed in. Yeah, we all com- we all compete together. Whereas the four seventy, it's just recently changed with the Olympics. But when I was competing, it was split. So you had the women's 470 class and the, the men's 470 class. So when I was, yeah, when I was sailing the 470, I was only racing against women. Whereas when I switched into 2.4, it was predominantly, um, it was predominantly men because there was only myself and Megan Pascoe, also from Great Britain. We were pretty much the only two girls on the circuit. So yeah, it was a very male dominated class. And then the other class within uh, the Paralympics was the sonar, and again, just mixed. So it's a sonar is a three-person boat, and yeah, there was no rules and regs of how many females or or males you had to have on board. It was what it was more down to that was where the points really counted. So with the two point four, it's a it's quite a special little boat actually. That it's it's so um, I guess you can adapt it to your disability. So. One one pointers would race against seven pointers. Um, it you know it didn't matter what your disability was. It was an even playing field, and we have an open world, so it's a big class. It's a big um, able body class in Scandinavia, and the open world. You know we'll have about hundred boats there, of which probably maybe thirty sailors are disabled, and so you're racing against all the able body guys. And nine times out of ten, there'll be at least five. Paralympic sailors in the top 10 and quite often quite often winning it or in the top three um so it just shows you what it's an amazing little boat how you know it's such an even playing field but certainly the 2.4 meter which was the one I sailed it was yeah men and female crack on get on with it even playing field yeah and, and it's, it's an amazing little boat for that I love that 
just how even and how at level playing field you describe that as being and probably a lot of people just aren't aware of like how highly competitive that that kind of sailing is given that it was full of people who'd been legitimately campaigning to be olympians they were not like beginners they knew exactly what they were doing they were legitimate athletes i wonder if we can fast forward a couple of years so you then went to london home games as a paralympic sailor i wonder if you could tell us about your london experience Oh, I mean, London. I mean, what, gosh, what can I say? What What are the chances of um, having the opportunity to, one, compete at home games in your lifetime and then to come away with a gold medal as well? It Yeah, it definitely doesn't get any better than that, I have to say. And it was, um, gosh, I mean, looking back, it was just one amazing journey. And, you know, I was really, I was kind of, I was really lucky to have um, a really good kind of coaching support network and also a, a really great um, sports psychologist as well, that there, there was a lot of pressure around London, particularly being a home games. And, you know, I worked really hard with Ben Shell, who was a sports psychologist at the time of just developing that mindset and the coping mechanisms uh, with dealing with kind of the pressure and blocking out going into my little bubble um so we're pretty strict with routines and and all and processes but gosh oh, i mean going into those games there were there was the usual suspects up for winning the medal so there's there was four of us um so myself damien Segrand from france who i've mentioned earlier heike kroger from germany and thierry schmitter from holland and the the four of us have been battling out for blimmin years you know, at world championships and previous games. And it was always kind of us usual sp- suspects at the front. And so my, my, I guess my expectations going into London was that it was going to be a full on scrap, a full on fight throughout the week. And it would probably come down to the last race, one to decide who was going to get the medals and then kind of what colours they were going to be. And I had a really great, I think what helped was I had a really good start to regatta. So I got some solid results on the, uh, on the board right, right at the beginning. And, and it kind of just went from there. And I think, again, Ben and I had worked really hard on just keep doing what you do. If, if it's working, don't change it. If it's not broken, don't fix it. And we just, I think because I had that good start, it was, okay, just got to just each day, just go out there. You know, it's another day, it's another race do your best, keep doing what you're doing, it's working. I was quick, I'd worked really hard with my coach, he'd got, really got me up to speed. And I remember kind of halfway through the regatta, I had um, an 11 point lead. And I remember being interviewed, you always had to go through the mix zone before you left the dinky park and, you know, talk to the, talk to the press and stuff. And I remember being interviewed and, you know, oh, wow, you got an 11 point lead. How are you feeling? You know, what are you thinking? And, you know, you must be really excited. Oh, you must be you know, thinking about that gold medal. And it's like, whoa, 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 you know. Well, I remember him saying, I remember the interviewer going, what is the thing you're most scared of? I was like, what? <laughs> And I just, I, I just thought, what a stupid question. So I just gave him a stupid answer. It's like getting eaten by a shark. <laughs> I thought it, it warranted that, that kind of response. <laughs> um, but again, I was just, I just kind of, I just said, you know, I'm, no, I'm not even thinking about medals or anything. I just focused on tomorrow, the next race, getting my head down, just keep doing what I'm doing. 
yeah, it, it's it's really nice to have that 11-point lead, but anything can happen. We've got another five races to go. Anything can happen. But I do remember kind of the night the night before the last race, and I I was guaranteed silver, but I wasn't I wasn't quite guaranteed gold. I didn't have enough of a point buffer to not have to do the last race, but I was in a position where Heike, who was the next well, who was in the silver medal position, he had to win. He had to win the last race, and I had to be tenth or worse. No, I think yeah, I had to be worse than tenth. So it was, you know, I was thinking wasn't in the bag, but it was looking pretty good. I was going to have to really mess up to and re- to really cock it up. And yeah, I just remember that night. I just couldn't. I couldn't sleep. Just couldn't sleep. I was so I was so excited, and yeah, just just yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it, it was one of those one of those things we start off, we start dreaming about like the on the water celebrations you're gonna have and all of that sort of stuff which you, you shouldn't be doing. And, and if Ben had known, he would have scolded me badly. But then the really the unfortunate thing was Doug the next day. So literally the next day, last race, wake up, not a breath of wind, not a breath of wind on the water, and so go into the dinghy park starts postponed so we're hanging around we we had a we had the athlete container which was amazing it had like beds tv in it like a little kitchen and so we were kind of hanging out i remember we were hanging out in there watching top gun when yeah it got to midday and they just decided now the you know the wind is just not going to come in and that was it they just no more racing so I, i won my gold medal in the dinghy park which is was was not how I expected to win it and not what I visualised, certainly not that night before. <laughs> and I, I suppose, and that's what, probably if you said to me, do you have any regrets from London? I think it would be not not having the opportunity to do that last race and not having the opportunity to have had the on the water celebrations. Like my family were all out there waiting on the water for us to come out and race. And, you know, we didn't go out. <laughs> We're in the dinghy park, so I think that would be that would be my one regret. My one regret. Oh, what a story! You had told me about the lack of wind on the last day, and I'd forgotten. And I'm really glad I'd forgotten. Yeah, just this image of you preparing for that that race and for that moment, and what it might feel like. And people who haven't watched Olympic sailing or Paralympic sailing, it's quite often they'll set off flares, that kind of thing, and it's kind of a big celebratory thing when people win medals and so on. And you didn't get it. You're in the dinghy park. How did you celebrate it? Oh, gosh. Well, we had, we had obviously, we had a team meal that night. And then we went, we, me and my husband, we'd actually moved down to uh, Portland, uh, par- partly because he'd, he'd actually got a job down there working at Sunseeker, um, but also kind of for the game. So we had a house literally just up, like five minutes up the hill from the um, the, the the Olympic Village. And our local pub was a pub on Chesil Beach um, overlooking the sea called The Cove. So we just, we basically, after the team dinner, we just went there and it was, oh, it was the best night ever. It was packed, all my, obviously all my family were there and friends. And, but then all the kind of, all, it was like the place to go. All the Aussies were there and all the, you know, the sailors were there, the, um, 
all the helpers and volunteers that had been running the racing. So it was just one massive party on the beach in uh, in the Cove pub. So that, yeah, that's pretty much kind of how it all, yeah, that, that with the celebrations was all, it all happened there. Okay, so we had this amazing experience in London, despite the small regret of not getting your moment on the water. You're Paralympic champion. What was the journey like from London into Rio? Oh, I mean, it was it, it was really interesting because I, I remember, I think a lot of people just thought, well, that's it, she's going to retire now. And that, so many people said to me, gold medal home games, how does it get any better? And it, Doug, it doesn't, you know, and I, I, I knew that in and I was honest with like, well, I, it won't get any better. But it was weird because I, I was not ready to retire. I still I still had that hunger. I still wanted to compete. And I knew... And I knew Rio was not going to be the same. And I think that, you know, that was really important that I recognised that, you know, it wasn't going to be the same as London. It, you know, London was incredibly special, but I still had the drive. Um, and actually, it, it was quite interesting. The campaign for Rio was better than the campaign for London. To be honest, it had to be because the venue in Rio was so tricky. The tides were an absolute nightmare. Just... Uh, I mean, initially the RA tried to, you know, do a tidal model um, using kind of computer software and all that stuff, but they just, you know, it, it just you couldn't model it. It was too, it was too random, and then you know it would rain, and that would just throw everything out the window. So all the tidal studies had to be done manually by coaches. Um, Graham Sunderland, who um, was an expert in tides, he he wrote a book called Winning Tides, which mapped all the tides in the Solent. Um, he he was employed to go out there and study it. So first of all, the tides were were pretty crazy and quite difficult to understand. Secondly, we were racing in the harbour, which meant you had to contend with Sugarloaf Mountain, the domestic airstrip, because they weren't going to cancel the planes, they were still going to be landing and taking off. And then all the all the high-rise buildings and all that sort of stuff. So it plays absolute havoc with the wind, you know. The wind's just shifting and bending and doing crazy things around all these obstacles. And so I guess, you know, very early on, you know, I sat down with my coach and we had this discussion of like, if there's going to be, it sounds, it sounds a bit weird, but, you know, there's going to be an element of luck that comes into Rio way more, you know, Portland and Weymouth, very straightforward. The tides were straightforward. You could predict it. The wind was very steady, especially uh, sea breeze conditions and stuff. So a far more predictable venue. And so we just said, right, OK, we're going to need the fastest we need to have the fastest boat and i needed to be in the best possible physical condition but also mindset because it was going to be pretty pretty there's gonna there's gonna be some curveballs that are gonna it's gonna be probably gonna be a snakes and ladders regatta where you get you are gonna probably have a couple of results that are just you know right down the pan just because of something that's happened and i think the really big thing with rio as well was the 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 rubbish in the water which was a real problem you know just unbelievable just carrier bags flip-flops unbelievable i mean i thought at some point i'm like i must be able to find a pair there were so many flip-flops and they'd all they'd all sit on the tide lines you know and you'd just be like there'd be like things like dolls and oh just unbelievable you know and the authorities, I mean, I think there was quite a lot on the news and stuff about it. And the authorities kept saying they'd clean it up and all that sort of stuff. And it had been cleaned up. But 
it hadn't. It was still pretty bad. And then on top of that, it wasn't just the rubbish. It was all, obviously the sewage as well, like the favelas and it would rain and everything would wash down into the harbour. And so, again, there was a real issue with potentially getting sick. And in the build-up to Rio and training, some sailors did get really quite sick. So it was like, oh, what on earth are we going to do? To prevent that and you know i had things like mouthwashes in my boat hand sanitizer it's almost like covid all over again you know <laughs> hand sanitizers and just trying to do whatever you could to just you know not not get any of the water in your mouth because you knew it could be a bit of a disaster if you did you know that was that would be your games over if you got sick that that would be that would be it so we put a lot of effort in and it was really it was brilliant because my husband got very much involved he's a, a yacht designer and a boat builder and he got very much involved in, in building my boat for Rio. And we knew this boat had to be special. And it had to be, you know, there's there's very strict rules around it. But there's there was certain, in terms of how well it was built and making it, gosh, a, a stiff boat is a fast boat. So making sure that the build process was, there was a lot of attention to detail that went into the build of the boat was key. So we actually we actually flew out to Finland where the boats are built and actually what kind of built my boat with 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 the guys in the factory and actually were there and present and just watched over the process and just made sure that, you know, the attention to detail was there to ensure that I just, you know, had a really good boat. And then with with my coach we spent a lot of time look, you know, fitting out making putting the, the best systems on it that we could just and again a lot of effort into um the cell development program and again so fortunate that my coach was really experienced before he'd done his olympic campaigns and then become a coach he'd been a cell maker and a cell designer so it's like so he was there designing myself making myself and yet yeah, i mean it was a really really good campaign better you know better a much better campaign actually than, than the one for London. And, you know, and again, you, you know, every single time that you do a campaign, you learn something, you know, you, 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 you learn something that you're like, yeah, okay, next time we'll do that. And you always want, you know, four years seems like a really long time, but you always run out of time. You never have enough time. So the, you know, the journey, the journey to Rio was very, it was very well planned. And even, you know, even my program, I remember, early days of sitting down with my coach and we, we worked backwards you know we started at there's the games where do we need to be at this stage this stage this stage and we actually you know we worked backwards so we had a really a really well thought out program of what events i was going to do training all of that side of things so yeah a really good professional um campaigning program i'm really interested to ask you this question having asked another podcast guest this question about winning medals at multiple Olympic or Paralympic Games in, in your case. It was bronze in Rio, gold in London, but you've described a much more effective campaign. I'm wondering, you can't like say which one you like more. How do you reconcile those two very different experiences given that element of luck that I guess that, that played into Rio? How, how do you make sense of those those two outcomes, I guess? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because with Rio, I actually led the whole week from start to finish i mean going into the last race it was it was very close don't get me wrong i was only i only had a one point lead this time not not like 10 points like i had in london so and i and also i wasn't i wasn't guaranteed a medal either going into that last race so the pressure was was definitely was definitely there and 
I mean that. Oh God, I mean I. I mean the, the last race. I try not to remember. I try and wipe from my memory. So cut a long story short. I think pretty pretty quickly after the start, I I picked up a plastic bag on my rudder, and because I'm sailing a kill boat, I can't like with the 470 or a dinghy. You can just lift the centerboard up, lift your rudder up, get it off, clear it, crack on. With a kill boat, as you know, you're pretty much stuck unless you know you've got some options. You can try and reverse and try and I hope it falls off, but there's that risk of it. It sort of drops and then you just sail straight back into it. It's yeah, it was, and I just. And as I said to you, all week my strength had been that I was really fast. And suddenly this last race, I am absolutely dog slow. And I, I kind of knew what the problem was. And it was just, you know, just trying to keep it together and stay calm through that race. So just like you're just going to have to deal with this. You're just going to have to do your best and just get around the course. And God, I remember crossing the finish line and my coach coming up. And I, just, I basically had a massive, great big black plastic bin bag attached to my rudder. And I was I was absolutely devastated. I mean, I was absolutely devastated. I, and I, I mean, it's funny because if you look at photos of me on the podium in Rio, I just look so miserable. And I think, it, you know, I didn't know, you know, I wasn't obviously, it was only one point ahead of Damien going into that race. So certainly no, not by any means guaranteed goal. But I think looking back, I just wanted a fair shot at it. I just wanted, you know, and I think for me, again, that would be my regret from, from, from Rio is that last race. I just... I just want, I wanted it to come down to my sailing ability. So, you know, if, I, if I'd ended up with bronze because I'd sailed badly and got the shifts wrong, actually I would find that a lot easier to accept than the fact that, no, it was because of a plastic bag. Because, yeah, it was like, okay, on, on that day, in that race, I wasn't quite, you know, I, you know, Damon was better than me. Um, and so was Matt, who ended up with silver. So that, yeah, so it's interesting because, and it took me a while. It really took me a while to sort of, kind of get over it i suppose and now on reflection you know i actually i i feel really fortunate to actually have a bronze medal from that games because wow it it would have been so easy to to have come away with nothing for the reasons that i spoke about earlier you know there was definitely going to be an element of luck going into these and Heiko who won silver in London he came away with nothing because unfortunately I think you know he picked up a plastic bag in two races and that was it game over no medal so you know on reflection I I now actually you know value my, my bronze medal I mean my gold will always be special because of it being London and the home games but now I do really value that bronze medal which at the time <laughs> just like I, I perhaps didn't but now, you know, I look back and think it's not easy. It really isn't easy to win medals at, you know, Paralympic Games. And actually by Rio, there are, there were more people competitive for the medals where with London, I spoke about four of us up for winning medals. I think there is about seven or eight sailors more than capable of coming away with a medal in Rio. So, you know, the, the sailors themselves, you know, I was suddenly competing against more the competition had raised its game, put it that way. And I'd had to massively raise my game alongside them. So, yeah, you know, it, it, it it's interesting because, oh, gosh, of course, I'd love, I would have loved it to have been gold. But, you know, I think I'm, I, I'm now on reflection pretty proud that, you know, I, am, I can actually say I'm a, I'm a double medalist. Um, you know, I'm, I'm actually quite proud to be able to say that because it's, it's not that easy. It's not that easy to do that. I mean, I think the good thing is, so with London, having having won a medal in London, 
what what is really useful is you know you know the winning formula and one thing that i did after london was write would actually write down all the things i wrote down why i thought i won gold in london and wrote down all the things that i thought i'd done well because i think it's so easy you know when things go badly that's you tend to take a lot more time reflecting on you know races or you know for me beijing um, my first Paralympic Games, that was a disaster. And and you tend to take a lot more time analysing those ones than you do when you do well. And you, you're kind of so busy celebrating and having a great time. You kind of forget to reflect and actually go, you know, why actually, why did I win gold? What did I do right? And I did make a conscious effort to write down and think about that because it's like, okay, you've got the, you've got the winning formula. Now you need to just take that with you into Rio. You're gonna, yes, you're going to need to tweak it because the venue's different. Your competitors are catching you up. They're nipping at your heels, but you've, you've got somewhere to start from, which is massive. I think you've, you know, you've got, you've got a really good starting point. So yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't switch my gold medal from, from London for anything. But I think I now, I do value now my uh, bronze from Rio. Yeah, thanks for sharing. And you've forced me to reflect upon something that Frances Houghton said when we had her on, on the podcast. I asked her how long it was before she felt pride at her second silver medal in Beijing. And she thought about it. And if you've listened to the recording, she says, I don't think I ever did feel proud of that medal. And it was really fascinating, like years and years and years later, actually just still didn't like we should have won gold we were going to win gold we just didn't execute our race properly and as you think at some point people will feel proud of those incredible achievements olympic silver medal like doesn't come easy but she didn't in her last games when she won silver with the women's eight she absolutely did feel really proud of that achievement but um yeah really interesting olympic silver medal incredible achievement but it wasn't it, it was something she never felt proud of so i'm really pleased that you got to a place with your your bronze medal plastic bag and all that you felt proud could yeah. feel proud of that achievement <laughs> i'm really really interested just uh just zooming into a different part of, of what you've been up to over the years you then moved into some coaching what i'm really fascinated to find out about in terms of your coaching is given your journey and everything you went through and you know people didn't even know you had a disability kind of thing and and everything you've learned in your campaigns and the plastic bag and everything that went with that how would you describe your approach to coaching others Gosh, I, I mean, I think, I guess along my kind of my journey, my sailing journey, sort of as I've got towards sort of the latter years and kind of thinking about what next, you know, I've, I've looked back and, and thought, gosh, I've just had the most amazing journey and the most amazing experience. And, and I think because of that, I really want to give back into our sport, which is why, you know, coaching just appeals to me so much. And I do feel... And at the moment, I'm very much coaching juniors and I, I absolutely love it because I think they're, I see them as little sponges, you know, they just, they just want to absorb as much information as possible. But I also, I think one of my strengths, and it didn't come until later in life, was developing that winning mindset. And I see it with my juniors that even at this age, you know, and some of them are only, you know, 10, 12, 13, there is there, there is that pressure that they're putting on themselves and you know and they they perceive it as oh, I got to do well like oh I got to do well for mom and dad and you know and I got to do well for my coach and it's like no 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 you don't and then they're putting this pressure on themselves and I I really want to kind of help and support them with 
enjoying, you know, just forget about all of that. Just go out, forget about the results, just go out and enjoy it. You know, you're so young, just go out and enjoy it, you know, and just help them kind of with their emotions and getting the most out of the sport and just helping them, yeah, improve improve their skills. But at the same time, you know, keeping that fun element in there and making sure that they they enjoy their racing and you know and i think it is a it's a tricky one because you could wrap them up in cotton wool and i don't think that helps them at all because you know unfortunately you know life's not fair the world isn't fair no one plays a fair game and i think you know so you know uh, and sometimes the best way to learn that is actually through sport and there are going to be winners and there are going to be losers and normally what what i found and certainly i found myself was Yes, absolutely. To to do really well in sport, you do need a certain amount of talent, but talent only gets you so far. You've got to have that drive and that commit, commitment and determination. And I've certainly, along along my sort of sailing careers, you know, seen sailors that have been way more talented than I have. But when it got tough, they just gave up. And it's those other skills I think are so important. And I and I think that's one of the things I want to get across to my junior sailors is, you know, don't don't worry about how you're doing at the moment. The skill set, the skills will come with practice. Yes, you might have to practice more than than Johnny over there because he may be a little bit more talented than you. But that doesn't matter because that practice, 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 you can do that. It's those qualities of the the dedication and commitment and 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 sticking at it there and the passion that they are the real ones that you know you you almost got to have naturally within you you know you never that never give up attitude and that not being scared to fail not being scared you know realizing that you're gonna you know you get you you've got to sometimes you've got to fail to learn that's how you're going to learn and get better because you've got to push the boundaries you've got to explore and sometimes you know you you're going to get it wrong but that that's absolutely fine because that's how you learn and i think it's those sort of areas and and those qualities that i you know i really want to help kind of with through my coaching and and certainly with the junior sailors and the and and uh the groups that i'm I'm involved with at the moment that's what I really want to help them with and help them understand oh wow there was a lot in there there's always a point on every podcast <laughs> where I ask everyone to listen back to the last couple of minutes I would very much encourage people to listen back to those last couple of minutes there was absolutely tons in there I was going to ask you advice for young athletes and you've kind of done it there so I, I now I have the uh, yeah <laughs> the very difficult task now of trying to get a little summary on this incredible conversation um, before, before we close it off Okay, where do we start? Because we kind of finished where we started, so we'll kind of maybe run this through twice, I suppose. That independence, that joy of sailing, like that, th- that feeling of mum and dad not being there, although it did start with you not really enjoying it at all. I think that, that's incredible. I really noticed uh, you describing that, um, how you reconcile the, the challenge of people you train with day in, day out, who you're then going to compete against, and this idea of, you talked about everyone needs to bring something to the table, I need to build that trust o- over time. If you're not enjoying it, you probably need to stop. Something you said earlier, and I just, yeah, your best races were when you were happy and you enjoyed it, and that's kind of what you were just talking about there with with young young people. I love this idea. You grew up not thinking of yourself as disabled, so it was a bit of a weird moment you had to recognise that you have a disability. You're not a disabled person, and I love that. I think this should be the name of the podcast. Only thing I can't do is give you a thumbs up. 
that's just great. <laughs> and then obviously your incredible experiences going through that gold in London and that more challenging bronze in, in Rio and those two little regrets not getting to the final race and then having the final race in Rio that didn't quite go to plan and and the, and the way it was. And then just that final piece we finished on really the um, supporting that developing a really good mindset in young people that you'll race better if you're enjoying it. And that thing I've written down, that, that well-used maxim, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. So you can you can have lots of, I guess, gifts to what you're doing or a predisposition to being good at something, but it's actually the ability to stick with it um, when it gets a bit tough that really matters. And I just hope those kids that you're working with uh, realise how fortunate they are to have someone like yourself with all your experiences and everything you've been through uh, working with them day in, day out and actually doing a lot more than just teaching them how to sail teach them how to be good people and how to how to work hard and, and all the lessons you've learned along the way. So just, yeah, thank you very much. People are going to want to follow you and keep an eye on you and find out what you're up to and probably, yeah, just maybe have another conversation with you. Where can they follow you? Um, So I've got a website, very simple, www.helenalucas.com. So uh, that's a pretty simple one. I'm I'm also on Twitter and on Facebook, um, so you can follow me there. Yeah, and uh, probably my website's a a great place to go and see what I'm up to and see, uh, yeah, see what new challenges I'm uh, thinking up of. (laughs) And I'm right in saying you're involved with um, the Magenta Project as well. Is that something that you're involved with just now yes yeah i'm i yeah absolutely i'm i'm a ambassador for the magenta project and i'm also a mentee on the project as well so uh, no mentor i have a mentee sorry i'm a mentor and i'm absolutely loving i'm really enjoying that it's the first time i've ever really done any mentoring and i'm i'm finding it invaluable i'm actually I'm kind of, I'm very lucky with my mentee, I think. she She's incredibly inspirational. So um, we've got a, a brilliant relationship kind of going there. And I'm very much enjoying that. And, you know, the, the Magenta Project is obviously very much about getting women on the water, sailing, but also into the industry, into boat building, into yacht design, all sorts of stuff like that. So very much kind of, you know, getting, you know, yeah, getting women into into the sport and into the industry. Great. Thank you very much. I will put the information uh, in the podcast description for anyone who wants to get um, Helena's details and and follow what she's up to with the Magenta Project as well. Everyone there was absolutely bucket loads in there. I really hope you just enjoyed hearing the stories of how she came to do what she did, but also some of those really key bits of learning that she's, she's picked up along the way. Do keep an eye out for future podcasts and hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss out. And everyone, please stay safe. 